Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night, everybody. Uh, I hope you all had a happy holiday. Um, Bliss and I took some time off during the holidays, and as you know, our podcasts are sometimes delayed by about two weeks. So this podcast is going to be a re-release of one of my old favorite podcasts uh, from uh, back a, a year or two ago called uh, Fear is a Thief. It's podcast number 261. And in that podcast, we talk about uh, uh, dissolving illusions. Uh, I read a chapter from Dissolving Illusions on disease vaccines and the forgotten history. Uh, we talk about uh, comparing the COVID vaccine and whooping cough vaccine. Uh, we talk about how the medical paradigm can create widespread cognitive dissonance and reasons not to trust organizations of authority. And I don't think that could be any less relevant today than it was when we first released this podcast. So I hope you enjoy. Listen, I will be back next week for a live podcast, well, not a live podcast, but a we're back together and it will be, uh, among other things, we'll be talking about the amazing cervix. So enjoy this podcast. Hope you had a great, happy holiday. Uh, and, uh, see you soon. Thanks. Are you, are you looking good? Your hair's wet. My hair is wet. Yeah. I had to take a shower. You know, it's interesting on RV. Yeah. You told me yeah. you have to do, you have to do girl stuff to get ready for the podcast. It's pretty, pretty interesting. I do. I can't wear the same outfit all the time. I gotta like, you know, gotta I have be my girl. usual scruffy look on. I'm wearing. I'm scruffy today. I didn't. I didn't. I got up early. I went for a bike ride over to the grocery store. Um, I'm back in LA for like ten days. Nice. It, there's uh, my daughter's picture, which is always great to have in the background. Um, and your big mic. My big mic. <laughs> Yeah. Am I getting one? Have we decided it's yes. good enough for me? I'm going to order one? you one and I have notes. Yeah. Wiggly nice? line notes, lots of notes. Yeah. <laughs> and I also have the Back hard copy, the, the hard copy of Dissolving Illusions. And I'm mm -hmm. going to spend 20 minutes today talking about whooping cough and original antigenic sin. So everybody should stay tuned. Okay. Stay tuned. Yeah. yeah. Nobody, nobody turn us off. You can't turn us I'm off. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere either. <laughs> so um, I was at uh, Rancho Murrieta Medical Center yesterday. And it was really weird. It's the first time I've been in a hospital in, I don't know, two years, three years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everyone was still wearing masks. Yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> and they didn't make me. Good. Because I was a guest speaker mm -hmm. and I gave a noontime uh, grand rounds on um, breach delivery. How cool is that? It was cool because there were three MDs in attendance, three OBs, and also <laughs> two on Zoom. So there were probably 30 people at least that were tuning in. And I gave a one hour and 30 minute talk with videos and stuff. Um, you know, it's an abbreviated, obviously, but. Uh, they were very interested and we had a great discussion afterwards. And it's really interesting because one of the doctors was a bit skeptical as you'd expect. And I, you know, I said, so 
I said, I said something about your, oh, so you're, you're skeptical or you're the skeptic one. Mm-hmm. And she took it personally. She took it like a, a pejorative. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't know me. You don't listen to me. <laughs> it's the skeptical ones are the ones you trust. It's the certain ones that you distrust. Mm-hmm. I like skepticism. I want to be challenged because I'm confident in my position. Good. But I'm not, I'm, I'm never certain. And I'm yeah. not going to speak with, you know, a, 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 a aura of authority that doesn't really exist, but I am, you know, giving people honest information. And so, yeah. And afterwards we had a really nice chat and they, they had Jersey Mike sandwiches for us and it was great. Oh, good. Wow. That's awesome. I hope you get more opportunities to yeah, do that. So that's a barrier that's, uh, that has been up for a while of trying to get into a hospital to speak. And I want to thank Maria uh, Maz King. She's a certified nurse midwife who has actually a birth center in San Bernardino, as well as hospital privileges uh, out that way. So awesome. that's awesome. Yeah. And then, and then uh, Dr. Fuertes, who was the, um, I don't know if she's the chairman, but she was the organizer of the event. She was wonderful. They were wonderful. They were really sweet to me. And uh, there were some um, young mid, uh, young, excuse me, labor and delivery nurses there just starting. Um and then, you know, I would ask the questions like, how many of you have seen this and how many of you have seen that? And there's not a lot. They've not a lot of seen normal stuff. Right. Nope. Nope. Yeah. They, if we, ha- if we have time today, I want to start a new, uh, I want to start a new game, which you, you will, call, I'm going to call it uh, uh, Bliss, name something the hospital does. And I'll tell you why it isn't working. Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. So maybe we'll uh-huh. get to that. If we have time, we'll get to that. If not, we got to do that in a future podcast. So you could name okay. things like, uh, you know, um, continuous fetal, mon- fetal monitoring, fetal monitoring, or you could say, uh, clear liquids, or you could say whatever. And I'll, and I'll have to come up off the cuff with why that's wrong. <laughs> cool. And our listeners can send in suggestions too. Yeah. Anything that the, anything, followers, the excuse me, fellow travelers. Fellow travelers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything that you think of that you, that's happened to you at the hospital or whatever. Um, if you want to know why it's wrong, you can just <laughs> send us a message and I'll, <laughs> and I'll tell right. you. Right. And exactly. you're, you're going to try to stump me. I want you to try to everyone. I want somebody to find something the hospital does that isn't wrong. Yeah. So it, I just want to give a little tease because we've been talking about some things that we want to um Uh, some subjects that we want to get to that we haven't talked about yet. So a future episode about fertility, um, future episode about um, uh, post dates and also hemorrhage hemorrhaging. So those are coming up. The list keeps growing bliss. And, and, you know, we're only doing this one once a week and so much happens during the week. And there's, you know, and, and some stuff like there's, there's so many articles that I now have been able to print out and, access so that I can talk about them. We're not going to get to all of them today, but there's things from ACOG and the American board, and there's studies about um, motherhood being delayed and menstrual irregularities. And Christiane Northrup was on uh, Paul Thomas's Against the Wind podcast. Very good episode. Very good episode to listen to. She's also quoted in an article, uh, which I I hope we have time. So, so let's, let's get right into it. Okay. I got to, I got to, I got three messages from, from fellow travelers. I have one as well. You want to go first? No. Okay. All right. So this is Marissa on Instagram. Just finished quote. Remember to breathe. 
which was our last episode, yeah. which was actually which was our- episode first episode 117. Our- yeah, our very first episode together. You know, okay, great. I have to say that I listened to it again and and it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. That was our very first one. And you're like, maybe I'll have you back. I know. I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> and look what happened. We're at we're on 261 now or something like that, I think, or whatever. I know. So yeah, we're on a roll. Great. All right. Um, just finished the episode of the podcast. I wanted to say I loved it. I'm a FTM in Lower Alabama planning. For an unmedicated hospital with a doula, FTM. Uh-oh. Is that a functional medicine doctor? Maybe, maybe. Mm-hmm. There is a home birth midwife that recently started practicing in our area and it hasn't been fully embraced. Oh, and hasn't been fully embraced by the OBGYN groups by any stretch of the imagination. Surprise, the, surprise. <laughs> yeah. For the very reasons you and Bliss discussed in podcast 117, I made the decision to forgo the home birth I truly want. For the lack of support from OB I have seen for the last three years. When I approached him with my desire for a home birth, I will credit him that he wasn't dismissive or rude, but rather very matter of fact said that, quote, our area isn't equipped to support home birth in a safe way, unquote. There would essentially have been no, quote, backup, unquote, in the event I needed to be transferred and I would have gone to the hospital as a drop-in being established with no office or doctor. This was the main reason I decided against home birth I truly desired. So I wrote her back real briefly and I said, thanks for sharing. I can't let it go though. Which part can I not let go, Bliss, do you know? His statement, our hospital is um, equipped to support yeah. home birth in a safe way. It's like, it's just bullshit. I'm sorry to be blunt. I'm not sorry to be blunt, I said. If they are not equipped for low-risk moms who may need assistance, they should not be doing OB at that hospital at all. Right. Right. What's the difference between somebody coming from a home birth who's tired, who's got an epidural, whose labor stalled out, and one of their clients who's coming in from home who's tired, whose labor is stalled out? Yeah, no, it's bullshit. There's no there's no legitimate reason why you uh, you couldn't. You know, they weren't equipped. I understand the hesitancy of um, Of wanting to have a doctor that you could go into. But, you know, for me. From what I know, it's absolutely not worth the 90% of first-time moms who would end up staying at home anyways. So you're talking about a 10% chance that you're going to go to the hospital. And most of that, like you said, is for things that are non-urgent, non-emergent. Um, and so, yeah. Almost always yes. non-emergent. It's so rare to call an ambulance yeah. for anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In my practice, it's about 20% for primips, but but that's because I have a... Like a broader spectrum of clients, but still yeah. 80% are still going to deliver at home. But, you know, I understand Marissa's point. She doesn't want to go in and be, and she's af- afraid of going in and being treated by a stranger and treated badly by a stranger. And yeah. I get that. yeah. So, you know, people weigh their own decision and this is part of informed and shared decision-making. So exactly. But she was sort of limited in her choices. So mm-hmm. she writes back, it's extremely frustrating. I'm a sonographer at this hospital. And have witnessed the behind the scenes OR talk about a mom who needed a DNC after a home birth due to retained products, and they could not have been more degrading. Mm-hmm. All while this poor mama on the table is asleep and having her procedure. Very akin to the quote, fucking home birth quote comment made by your nurse acquaintance in the ER that we discussed in our podcast 117. Yeah. Right. So thanks, Marissa. Okay. Uh, another one I got from Full Moon Wellness. Oh, uh, on Instagram. Um, 
Are there any studies that show that the placenta truly starts to deteriorate more rapidly if you've had COVID during pregnancy? This seems to be something that is circulating and providers in our area are trying to pressure moms into early inductions, like, like they need a new reason. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> or additional scans because of it. Oh, like they need a new reason for that too. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to see if there were any studies behind it. Okay, and then I wrote back, I haven't seen any reliable data at all. No. And, and as I think Big Pharma doesn't want to know. Uh, funny or not, it's really, this is what I wrote back. I said, actually, OBs push the vaccine, which can also, we know, cause uterine lining issues. That's becoming clearer. Then after pushing the vaccine, they will then say to you, you need an induction because your placenta might have a problem. <laughs> But she was talking about actual getting COVID. COVID no, she right? was. Yeah. 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 Okay. She yeah. was. But by the way, the vaccine doesn't protect you from COVID anyway. So it, it's, but I'm just saying there's evidence that the vaccine affects the syncytia, which is probably part of the reason there are some menstrual irregularities. I won't have to, I won't have to do this paper now, but there's a paper that says um, that the length of menstrual cycles is being affected slightly by the COVID vaccine but the amount of flow is not. Yeah. But it's interesting because they say that they, the length of cycle is being affected by the vaccine as if that's okay. As, yeah. if, as if, well, okay, but then what? And what does that mean? And why is that okay? Um, is that a trade-off? What else is it doing? If it's affecting the cycle, what's, what's causing the cycle to be affected? Is it affecting... The pituitary gland, is it affecting the ovaries? Is it affect, what's it affecting? And nobody cares. I mean, big pharma doesn't care. Right? Yeah. I mean, a lot well, of the data that's coming out now is hidden. And the only reason it's coming out now is because uh, I forgot who somebody, maybe it was ICANN, maybe it was uh, Dell Big Tree's organization that got uh, Freedom of Information Act uh, decision in their favor and make them release these papers that they wanted to hide for 75 years or some ridiculous number. Okay. Okay. One more, a little bit longer. Uh, you want to use yours? Let's do yours. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is Sarah Stewart. Um, I did not respond to her. I'm going to let her know that I, that I read it on the air today. Um, and she was just saying, um, in response to, um, I got, I got a little worked up last week. I don't know if you were paying attention to my, uh, post last week, but, um, there's, there's some changes that are happening in the community that I'm in right now in Santa Barbara. Um, a really, really amazing OB doctor, um, Dr. Melissa Drake, has decided to uh, end her practice here. And um, I'm hoping at some point she will come on and talk to us in depth about, about why. But, um, you know, really it's um, the stress of working against a system here in a very small community has um, just become insurmountable for her to continue. So she's gonna make some changes, um, and it came it came pretty suddenly. I'll, you know, she um, she decided that after uh, June thirtieth, she'll no longer be be working in the hospital and will be closing her practice. So she's got a lot of people who are pregnant um, who need care now. And so, you know, we were really hoping that a lot of these people would switch. And I think uh, to to out of hospital delivery, and I think some of them are, but, you know, as we've talked about many times before, um, 
you have to have the right mental stuff as you, as you like to say. And so, you know, it's, it's hard for people to kind of jump from that perspective quickly if they weren't already thinking about it or leaning towards it. So I've had a lot of interviews last week and a lot of conversations about fear. You know, people who know the statistics, they, they're they really well-educated. There's nothing that I'm going to say in that conversation to them that is going to be new for them. They know that it's low, it's 1%, you know, um, but it's the fear that's gripping them still, the what ifs. And, um, and those conversations get frustrating because it's like, what do you say to someone when they're, when it's, when they are informed and they know that it's really low and, and they just can't go against their family, you know, no one in their family had done it, had an out of hospital delivery. And, you know, so anyways, I I was a little frustrated last week. So one of the posts that I put up was not at the woman, just at the system, right. At, At our culture that, that these poor women are terrified to do something that is, is an innate uh, thing that we do and that there's so much beauty that's available. So I just, I, I think the frustration is really about like, why can't I figure out the right thing to say that will help these people feel differently? It's not, it's not them that I'm frustrated with. Um, so I had a thing up on Instagram that said fear is a thief. And this woman responded to that and she said, hi, okay. So my babe is four weeks old. We planned a home birth, but I ended up transferring to the hospital with a detailed birth plan after literally days of early labor that was just as intense as my active labor. I hadn't slept in days and was completely out of energy. Do you have any ideas on why this might be? I definitely have had generational birth trauma passed down, but I was so determined for a home birth. Baby was nine pounds healthy and delivered vaginally. But I had an epidural tapered off for pushing, didn't even feel like I had one. Anyways, for the next babe, I feel even more determined for a home birth, but I don't understand why my early labor was so long and intense. I've never heard of another woman having such a painful early labor. And so, you know, it's hard to know why women experience pain so differently. You know, it's it's one of the things I think that as providers, we, we really, um, try and dig deep into and try and really understand because we would obviously like to support people in, in having as little discomfort as possible. Obviously labor is, is a, it's a, it's an intense experience to go through. Um, but a lot of times I believe that it's positional. Um, it can be emotional. It sounds like she's done a lot of work. Sometimes, you know, that um, tension, fear, uh, pain cycle. Um, if you feel afraid, you're more tense and then you tend to experience pain more. But I've had women who have done literally all the things to prepare themselves and still have, a, you know, what from the outside, what seems like they are really experiencing labor in a way that, you know, we talk about, like, you don't want a woman to suffer. Like you know that it's going to be a difficult experience, but suffering is a completely different thing. And no one is in this to have women suffering through the experience. So Sarah, I don't know, Stu, do you have something that you want to add to what I said? No, because I mean, we really, we really don't have an answer for it. I think that's what you just said is that there, there isn't, but we, 
you know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, there's, a, there's so much that what you just said, I, I got, I made a couple of notes. So um, I'll start with the pain thing. I mean, obviously it's very hard to watch. Um, it's, 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 it's hard for partners to watch. It's hard for doulas to watch. It's hard for labor delivery nurses to watch, to watch somebody go through pain. You know, we've talked about on the podcast before that labor remains painful for a reason, I do believe. But why so why so early and why people perceive pain? You're right. There is no good answer for that. Um, we've seen a lot of prolonged early labors lately. Yeah. Okay. So I want to reassure your client that that I mean, it does happen. I mean, it's been happening. It seems like there's been more awareness of it. I don't know if it's related to uh, just the overwhelming sense of sort of stress and uh, and not well-being in the community right now and uh, upheaval and division and demoralization that's going on. So maybe that's part of it. And everybody will manifest those sorts of things differently. And some people will get it as pain in their legs. Some people get a headache. Other people will have palpitation. I mean, it's, we, we all manifest these things differently. So who knows what else is going on in the world, in her world, that could have made pain perception different. And then you also said that fear is a thief, which I really love, but it's also paralyzing. Fear is paralyzing. And it's the reason that it works. And it's the reason why people who want to get you to do something will use it. And uh, when I get to a little bit of the dissolving illusions segment I want to talk about today, you'll see that there's a purpose behind what they're doing. So uh, yeah, we have to overcome fear. And I, there's, you know, I love, I love seeing all the, you know, the juju, the mystic and all these people that are posting these wonderful things about my friend, Pamela Gregory, who's posting stuff about your better life, your better self. You do it. I mean, you know, I love reading your posts. I don't ever miss any of yours. Thanks. <laughs> So, um, Sarah, I know she's talking about her next delivery. And I think the thing um, to remember is that every experience is different. Every baby is different. You know, I talk a lot about the baby being like a lock and key in your pelvis. And it's so individual how each baby navigates your pelvis. Um, so I know that this first one was a long one, but the likelihood of having something like that again is pretty low. Um, but but keep the faith and believe that you will have the experience you're hoping for. And maybe it's something like um, my experience that I look back on, you know, when I got transported the first delivery, you know, so baffling to me why I would be get transferred. And then my life story, it fits in so perfectly into why I became a midwife. So we don't always know when we're in the middle of it, but I'm sure that there are some lessons that you're going to reveal as you continue down your path. So thanks for reaching out. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this letter. I have a letter from Megan and it's about IVF and I'm wondering, should we do a whole podcast on it? But we, yeah, that's we, why I was saying, yeah, fertility. Okay, all right. I'm going to save yeah. Megan. I'm saving your letter and we'll try to get to it within the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of a guest that I want to have on. Okay, good. And then that would be a good lead into the... Okay, great. Bliss, what is Element? L-M-N-T. It's a amazing sponsor, first of all. We love them so much. But it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like... Us. That's right. <laughs> 
I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have a um, thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot of sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I've spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, they've been doing really well and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your favorite, uh, favorite is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine and yours is mango yeah. chili. But I, I do have, I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to Lemon Habadero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. All right. So mm -hmm. looking at some other stuff before we get to um, the book, a um, couple, a couple real quick ones that I wanted to say, just sort of ridiculous ones that I wanted to talk about. So um, let me see if I can find them here. Um, Let's see. I didn't really do a check-in. There was something I wanted to say. Yeah, today. go ahead. Yeah, I just, um, you know, yesterday there was a shooting. Oh, right. At, at um, a elementary school, correct? Yes, an you elementary school in, in Uvalde, Texas, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, some people were thinking about me and reached out, which was very kind and I haven't really posted anything about it because it's, you know, it's obviously so close to my own heart, but I do want to say for those that follow us, um, I don't believe that it's just about legislation. I don't, you know, not to say that we shouldn't move forward with, you know, some of the things that people are talking about, but I really believe it's, it's akin to what you were kind of talking about earlier, Stu, is like, you know, as a, as a species, I was going to say as a country, but as a species, we're very sick, you know, mm -hmm. and we're not taking care of each other. And um, we're not, you know, especially now things are so um, divided. And I think I, I would like for people to be thinking about this from the perspective of, you know, um, humanity and that we're, we're just a very sick culture. And how can we start to think about um, changing the way that we treat one another? Um, because there's a lot of mental health issues that are going on that, and people that are just not supported, you know, the homeless situation, all these people living on the streets. So I just didn't want the podcast to go completely by without um, mentioning it. 
And, and obviously my heart goes out to those families. I know that everybody is feeling that way, but um, it's, it's bigger than that. And I think people are, you know, I saw that post from um, uh, the NBA. Who is that? The guy who spoke. Oh, you didn't see uh, it. I, I, haven't, anyway. I, I haven't seen anything. So yeah, he was very, very, he was very outspoken about it and was very frustrated. It, and someone said that his dad was killed um, when he was a teenager by gun violence. So I'm sure that that's where some of the passion came from, but you know, this feeling of like enough of, uh, you know, taking a moment of silence and praying for it. Like we really, we really need to be thinking about this in a different way because our, our people should be able to go to the grocery store or go to church or go to school without the fear of, of, uh, gun violence and being shot and killed. So, um, that's it. I just wanted to mention it today. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we could make, uh, if you get me started on that, we'll, we'll, we'll never get anywhere else. So I'll just, I know, I'm sorry. I just felt like I needed to do it. I love that you needed to do it. Mm-hmm. All right. So I wanted to just do some really quick, stupid stuff. I <laughs> find it. Okay. So um, I get, I get emails from the American college of OBGYN. Okay. And you know, this, um, I got a new one now that, uh, ACOG's coding resource support you and your practice. So ACOG is now having um, billing coding on demand online courses. And you can buy the new coding manual for from uh, ACOG for only $155. So again, we talked about the AMA is, this, is the developer of this coding stuff and they, they make most of their revenue from doing this. On the other hand, why wouldn't we expect other organizations to glom on and, and make profit out of this sort Where of thing? Where they can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's take up our time on how to code because, because how we bill is obviously, I mean, it's become very important because how do you make a living if you don't bill properly? But the idea that you have to now send your office manager or somebody else constantly taking coding courses to keep up on how to bill rather than just saying, I spent this much time with her and I did this much and I'm charging $200 for that. Yeah. No, no. You, so have to break it, you have to break it down into every little teeny code. And then what are they doing with those codes? <laughs> you know, what are they doing with them? Mm-hmm. I mean, who's monkeying with these, this data? You know, it's, it's, you know, they, the, the other day I saw on TV, the, the CEO of Pfizer wants you to swallow a pill now that has a little chip in it that tells the pharmacist that you actually took the medication. And he thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread that you could, that the pill will now t- tell that you're compliant with your medication. Wow. That, does that scare any, does that scare yeah. anybody? Jesus. It scares me. Yeah, me too. Okay. I will um, be taking the pill. Right. And then there's another thing from ACOG. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, hello, ACOG members. This is from uh, Kelly McHugh. She's the chair elect of district nine. So that's my district. Um, mm-hmm. assembly member, Dr. Akila Weber is championing a proposal sponsored by ACOG District 9 that would align the Medi-Cal global obstetric rate with the rate provided by Medicare. If approved, the proposal will increase reimbursement for all global obstetric rates. As an example, the global obstetric code for vaginal delivery right now with Medic- Medicaid, which we call Medi-Cal is how much bliss? How much do we get reimbursed? Yeah, how much do you think? Just guess. For birth. From Medicaid. $1,200. 
close. 1394. Yeah. It used to be eight. <laughs> so it's gone up a little. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, but it's one thousand three hundred. That's for that's for your global. That's your global fee. Yeah. Could so you how many? On that? You know, if you have an office overhead of ten thousand bucks a month or fifteen thousand bucks a month, and you have to make a salary and you have to pay, you know, your your mortgage and all this other stuff, how many yeah. deliveries do you have to do at that rate? All right. Well, they want to try to double it. They want to try to double it to twenty six hundred and fifty four, which is still squat, but yeah, nonetheless, it's better. <laughs> It's better. <laughs> yeah, you know, a small well, you know, a small knife wound is better than a large knife wound. Well, the re- yes, I agree with what you're saying, Sue. But what I'm saying is, as a home birth midwife, it's never made sense to be able to accept Medi-Cal because you can't, you just can't give the quality of care that we give for that amount of money. But if it was closer to three thousand, you could at least do it occasionally, you know, um, which would feel good to be able to help, you know, an occasional family who really can't doesn't have access to this. Um, but you can't live off of it. You have that's why that's why you get to see your OB or your your uh, CNM or whoever for five minutes because they've got to keep people going through. Otherwise, you can't pay the bills. So yeah, yeah, the screwed system. For sure. Well, speaking of screwed systems, I love art. You know, you just are great at giving me segues <laughs> to the next. Maybe, thing. maybe you're just great at picking them up. <laughs> maybe I'm just great at picking them up. So, Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition. That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah. Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated, uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah. Preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So... You can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use 
scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Nita designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code BIRTHINGINSTINCTS for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. We talked about this on a podcast a few months ago about the American Board of Medical Specialties. About, and there's an article that's uh, authored by some people that we've heard of, um, James Thorpe, Christiane Northrup, Ryan Cole, Richard Urso, Paul Merrick, Peter McCullough, among other names. And it's just briefly, I just took the abstract from it. It's called Patient Betrayal, the Corruption of Healthcare, Informed Consent, and the Physician-Patient Relationship. And um, it's from an online journal called the Gazette of Medical Sciences. And it says the purpose of this study is first to review disciplinary threats made to healthcare professionals by their governing bodies in the United States. And second, to review the medical literature for complications related to the COVID-19 vaccines and data from the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, particularly, particularly those related to pregnant women and women of reproductive age, which is a special interest to our audience. The authors also aim to bring attention to the populist healthcare workers and healthcare administrators that illegal and unconstitutional gag orders have been placed on all healthcare workers in the United States, and to alert everyone that no healthcare worker can tr be trusted since they are under a gag order, which renders informed consent null and void. <laughs> Absolutely. So only people like me and you and independent practitioners can really give honest informed consent. When you get informed consent from your HMO doctor or your corporate physician or your pharmacist who works for CVS Pharmacy, um, you cannot trust them. I love the term gag order because it's true. It's true. That's, that's a great way of wording it. It is our intent to put governing bodies of healthcare workers on notice that they will be held accountable and lay, I, you know, that term held accountable has lost its meaning <laughs> because everything I always hear, we need, an, we need a congressional investigation or we need something or we need to No, you know what? I don't know what held accountable means anymore because it never happens. None of these people are ever held accountable. Do you understand? Yes. And what, and what, what, what's coming to my brain is why you're saying, do you understand? Cause I have this blank stare in my yeah, face. Yeah. You're looking it, at me like, well, because my wheels are turning Stu, and what, and it goes back to what I was just saying about the gun violence. We're a sick culture. Yeah. And instead of going underneath and trying to fix what's happening, we, we, we are using all of these laws and medicines and double checking and doing all of these things to try and control what's happening. But again, we have to go deeper. We have to go underneath and we have to do some different kind of work because just uh, congressional orders and all of these things are not going to be the things that are going to change what's happening on the planet. It is our intent to put governing bodies of healthcare workers on notice that they will be held accountable and lay legal groundwork for possible racketeering influenced and corrupt organizations act RICO violations, collusion, and fraud. These potential criminal acts exposed in a court of law can pierce legal immunity of big pharma and others and pierce any perceived immunity given to hospitals and organizations via the CARES Act. So what they're saying here is that by gagging physicians and 
and preventing us from talking about alternative therapies or problems with the vaccine or that, that coronavirus isn't that dangerous for most people who are young and healthy. Um, that if you do those sorts of things, you might find yourself not so safe under the, you know, the, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Act of 1986 or, or whatever the CARES Act is. I don't exactly know what that is, but it probably gives immunity to hospitals who are just following government guidelines or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then it shows here that in the results in September of 2021, statement regarding the of COVID-19, dissemination of COVID-19 misinformation, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology threatened their 22,000 constituents, by the way, of which I'm not one, mm-hmm. um, with disciplinary actions, including revocation of licensure and board certification. In this statement, ABOG referenced the Federation of State Medical Boards and the American Board of Medical Specialties. There are 1,013 peer-reviewed medical journal publications documenting morbidities and mortalities of the experimental COVID-19 nucleic acid therapy. In other words, the vaccine. There's over 1,000 peer-reviewed papers documenting problems with this vaccine. VAERS data demonstrate a significant risk associated with experimental gene therapy in women of reproductive age and pregnant women. So despite 1,000 peer-reviewed papers, these organizations are telling, you know, are, are threatening doctors with uh, revocation of license and board certification. So they conclude the American Board of OBGYN and other authoritative bodies regulating healthcare workers issued inappropriate gag orders on their constituents, thus preventing informed consent and destroying the physician-patient relationship. Many reputable sources of data, medical literature, and VAERS signal danger for the use of COVID-19 vaccines, especially during pregnancy and in women of reproductive age. American Board of OBGYN must retract their inappropriate threats and recommend against the use of COVID-19 vaccine in pregnancy until long-term prospective trials are conducted. So good for them. Good for them. Okay, so CARES Act, Stu, is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. 2.2 trillion economic stimulus passed by uh, Congress Congress and signed into law by Donald Trump in 2020. Fantastic. So you remember what I said about any any act that has a nice sweet name to it? Cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I think mm-hmm. with uh Aaron last week I talked about the British one it's called nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I mean that's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. Agreed. All right. One more thing along that line. This is from the Epoch Times. Um it's dated April 28th. Uh, It's called, What I've Seen in the Last Two Years is Unprecedented, Physician on COVID Vaccine Side Effects on Pregnant Women. Who wrote it? Well, it's written by a guy named Enrico Trigoso, but they're quoting Dr. James Thorpe, who's the lead author on that paper, that thing I just read you. Okay. So they go together. So James Thorpe is an extensively published 68-year-old physician, board certified in OBGYN, as well as maternal fetal medicine, double-boarded who has practiced obstetrics for over 42 years. In his career, he says, I've seen many, many complications in pregnant women in moms and in fetuses and children and offspring. Fetal death, miscarriage, death of the fetus inside the mom. What I have seen in the last two years is unprecedented, Thorpe asserted. So despite the fact that he's seen all these things over his 42 years, um, what he's seen in the last two years, he says, is, is much worse. From the first day of the Pfizer biotech vaccine rollout on December 1st, 2020, 
through February 28th of 2021, there were 1,223 deaths and 42,086 adverse events were reported to Pfizer. So this is not VARES, this is were, were reported to Pfizer. Among the adverse events particularly alarming are the ones that affected pregnant women. The documents say that there were 274 pregnancy adverse events of which 75 or 27% were serious. The CDC website recommends the COVID vaccines during pregnancy in order to quote, prevent severe illness and death in pregnant women. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology also strongly recommends that pregnant individuals be vaccinated. By the way, they noticed that they said pregnant individuals. Yes. Yeah, okay. Adding that, preg oh, adding that pregnant women's complete vaccination should be a priority. That's actually, that's actually not the quote. The quote is pregnant individuals. That's from ACOG, I love it. Okay. Um, yeah, pregnant women's complete vaccination should be a priority. That should be a priority. It's important to note that none of these gene-based agents had completed what's called reproductive toxicology. Over a year later, this battery of tests in animals still has not been done. So there was still, there was and still no data supporting safety in pregnancy or prior to conception. Dr. Wolfgang Wodard and Michael Yeadon, former Pfizer vice president, detailed the concerns on the issue. The spike protein from the virus encoded in the vaccines was related to a minor extent to syncytion that plays a crucial part in the carrying of a baby to term. We envisioned the risk that in responding to the synthetic piece of virus spike protein, women's immune systems would also make an immune response to their own placental protein. To answer that question earlier, again, there's no data, this is what they propose. That's exactly what was reported in the preprint paper. You know, initially this was hidden in documents that Pfizer did not want to release for 75 years. Based on this concern alone, all of these experimental products as a class should have been completely contraindicated in women younger than menopause. Another concern was that the mRNA products would accumulate in the ovaries. A freedom of information request to the Japanese medical agency, medicines agency, found a 2012 review explicitly drawing attention to the evidence that the lipid nanoparticle formulations as a class do in fact accumulate in ovaries and may represent an, an appreciated reproductive risk to humans. The former Pfizer vice president, Mr. Yeadon, Dr. Yeadon, I guess, believes that the pharmaceutical industry definitely knew since 2012 that the lipid nanoparticles would accumulate in the ovaries of women that took the vaccines. No one in the industry or the leading media could claim they didn't know about those risks to pregnancy, he said. Dr. Christiane Northrup told Epoch Times last October, women are having bleedings. Women's periods are messed up all over the place. I've had a huge Facebook group of thousands of women talking about this situation that was removed, Northrup said. Yeah. My profession is famous for embracing treatments that later turn into disasters. And she quotes thalidomide, the Dalcon shield, and diethylstilbestrol or DES. Yes. Right. History. So. It's important to continue to look at history too, right? Because, you know, someone who's had a career of 42 years can, can see a change um, in what's happening without a study. <laughs> Patterns of evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, Bliss, the perfect segue. Because 
What's happening to us with coronavirus vaccine all seems novel to people who've not had any history of other of the vaccine history. And as I said before, I just I finished this book, Dissolving Illusions. I don't think it's going to affect me in the way that Atlas Shrug was sort of a sliding door moment for my in my life. But this book is a must read. And it's going to be very difficult for people to read it, partly because it's very technical, but partly because it's going to be very upsetting when you when you see some of the stuff in there that you that parents must read. Parents I wish you had read it to me. <laughs> read what? That book. Well, we could have had like like bedtime stories by Stu. You could just have just read it to me. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I'm going to read to you. Uh, I'm going to take the next 15 minutes or so. And read to me? And read to you. All for right. 15 minutes? Yeah, I went through the I went through the chapter on whooping cough and wow. I did I did this. What did I do? Highlighted. Yeah, I took out my yellow highlighter. Okay. Whew, I'm gonna have to throw some jokes in there in the middle because 15 minutes of reading, Stu. Well, I'm gonna pause. <laughs> I'm gonna pause and I'm gonna stare at you for a comment, okay? <laughs> you're gonna know exactly you're gonna know exactly when to comment, Bliss. You are. <laughs> before before you start i just want to say you and i had a had a heart to heart off camera uh i don't know six weeks ago or something talking about all of the things that we're seeing in the midwifery world um with with losses um and retained placenta and heavier bleeding and i just want to say it's not all vaccine I'm, I'm glad that you're the type of person who does this research and talks about the other side because that's not being talked about, but we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know. There are people who have not had vaccines, so we don't know if it's shedding. We don't know if it's the stress that you were talking about earlier or just getting coronavirus in general, but things in our world and in this work are shifting and we just need to be really aware. If you're a provider, I highly, highly recommend if you're not doing it already to document if they've had a vaccine, which vaccines they've had, if they had, <laughs> okay, if they had um, the virus, <laughs> when they had the virus, uh, you know, all of that. I think it's a good idea for us to keep track of, of this stuff because it's not across the board just a vaccine issue. I think there's a lot more going on. Yeah. If people don't know that's the, that's the word provider bell. <laughs> but, but, but I, I, I agree with everything you just said, but I will say that when, you know, we are so careful about what we tell pregnant women to expose themselves to, to eat, yeah. to do. Yeah. The idea that we're going to inject something into a woman that's never been tested. And that woman is carrying future generations within her. Yes. And we're just going to do that. You're right. It's, it's probably a combination of all those things. I don't know about shedding or not. I don't know. I'm sure stress has a role in it. I maybe nutrition has a role in it. maybe, maybe uh, uh, glyphosate or, or um, uh, you know, GMOs or, or oh, yeah. all that stuff. I don't know, but something's happening. But the idea that we're purposely not just requesting it, but we're demanding it. We're coercing people into taking this. Oh, I'm telling them that it's safe and effective. Yeah. Um, that, you know, evil has always been around, but, but maybe it's there, maybe there's, there's a, there's a rise in evil right now. I don't know. Maybe that's also going on. Okay. Whooping well, that's cough. another, that's another part of fear. 
right? Sure. So, you know, some people freeze, like you said. And the other part of fear is that people try and grab for control. They lash out. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So. Do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about whooping cough. This book is divided into multiple chapters. And I think periodically I'm going to go and do one. Like I'm doing a whooping cough today. Maybe we'll do measles and or smallpox another time. Um, but whooping cough, I think, is so relevant because, first of all, it's people still fear whooping cough. They, mm-hmm. and we talk about whooping cough and and you get uh, everybody, you know, you get pertussis shots, DPT shots or Tdap or DTAP or whatever. Um, so many, so many in childhood that I wanted to talk about it because it blew me away, this chapter. Okay. And who's the author? Say it again. Oh, well, there's two authors. It's Suzanne Humphreys mm-hmm. and Roman Bistrianic. And I got the book on Amazon. I mean, I bought it on uh, Audible. And then because I was listening, I said, I got to be able to get my highlighter out for this book. I, I had Amazon. I got it in 24 hours from Amazon. So that was cool. Yeah. And what are their what are their backgrounds, those two authors? Well, let's find yeah. out. Are they doctors? Are they? Well, Suzanne Humphreys is a doctor. Okay. I'm just looking. Let me see if I can find it. Is it, that be in the back? Let's see, it's in the back. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Uh, Roman Bistrianic has been researching the history of diseases and vaccines for more than 15 years. I think this book came out in 2013. Mm-hmm. He has an extensive background in health and nutrition, as well as a BS in engineering and an MS in computer science. Dr. Suzanne Humphreys earned her medical degree in 93 from Temple University in Philadelphia, then became board certified in internal medicine and nephrology. Uh, okay. um, in 2011, she chose to change directions, now practices as a holistic health consultant. She left a teaching, she left her teaching and her academic uh, professorship to, because I, I think probably because she couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, got it. Okay, thanks. All right. So from its peak in the 1800s, whooping cough deaths have declined by more than 99% before a vaccine was in widespread use. Did you know that? No. Okay. Good. Honest answers. I love honest answers. The, na- <laughs> the national vaccination program in the, began in the United States in 19, late 1940s in England by 1957. Very early on, there were indications of problems. A 1946 article discussed twin boys aged 10 months who both died on June 19, 1945, after receiving their second injection of diphtheria and pertussis vaccine. A 1948 article in pediatrics discussed cases of brain damage following use of the vaccine. The article is hauntingly similar to the large number of cases of autism that would escalate decades later. The children, mostly boys, had been developing normally and showed no problems prior to receiving the vaccines. They manifested acute cerebral symptoms within hours of injection, a regression or failure for the development occurred afterwards. The authors conclude that the risks of the vaccine seemed too great if the only thing to be avoided was the average attack of pertussis. At the time of their paper, death from whooping cough had become relatively rare. Since whooping cough had become much milder and there was an increased risk of neurologic complications from vaccination, the necessity of vaccination at all was intermittently called into question. This was in 1960. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. When there is a risk and when the neurologic complications may either be fatal or lead to serious consequences for the individual and the family, the situation needs to be reconsidered. By the way, I want people listening to, to pretend that I'm talking about something that's going on in 2022. And you can see that the history is repeating itself. Thus, it may be questioned whether universal vaccination against pertussis is always justified, especially in view of the increasingly mild nature of the disease and the very small mortality. Sound familiar? 
Yes. In 1981, Dr. Gordon Stewart stated that vaccination was not justified because most cases of whooping cough were mild and recovery provided lasting immunity. In the United Kingdom and in many other countries, whooping cough and measles are no longer important causes of death or severe illness except in a small minority of infants who are usually otherwise disadvantaged. I love the way the British speak. <laughs> <laughs> In these circumstances, I cannot see how it is justifiable to promote mass vaccination of children everywhere against diseases which are generally mild, which confer lasting immunity, and which most children escape or overcome easily without being vaccinated. Most medical experts continue to ignore these reports and insist that the vaccine only rarely led to neurologic problems. Denial. As it occurred with the smallpox vaccine years earlier, there was a medical bias against admitting that a heavily promoted medical procedure was actually harmful. Shocking. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor for Fit. <laughs> They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member as our friend Lindsay ha had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program, is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client, um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed, nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know, any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days. One video a day, less than 10 minutes, that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. I mean, come on. That sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah. And then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, Pretty the birth fit community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code INSTINCTS1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or go to birthfit.com, use the code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. In 1993, the Parents Guide to Childbirth Immunizations published by the CDC 
promoted the idea that although there could be a reaction to DTP, possible brain damage had, quote, not been proven, unquote. The possibility of death from the vaccine was not mentioned. Previous studies included the 1985 Institute of Medicine report showing 10,300 seizures, 164 cases of encephalitis, 60 cases of chronic disability, and two to four deaths each year from the DTP shot. That, that must have been missed by the CDC's authors. I think there's a little bit of so, sarcasm there. Yeah. So um, when you said possible brain damage has not been something, has Proven. not been proven. So I had my first child in 1992. That was 1993. I think you said. Mm -hmm. So if I heard that as a parent, possible brain damage has not been proven. That's enough reason for a minor thing for a minor disease, like whooping cough to say, yeah, no, thanks. That's all I, that's all I would need. I don't need a study, you know? Yeah. They forgot to yeah. tell you that. Which part? I have to tell you about the deaths and the chronic disability and the encephalitis and the seizures. Yeah, I didn't. I don't need all that. Just possible brain damage. Okay, well, thanks. Keep Done. going. We're going to yeah. keep going here. Okay. <laughs> yes. The most marked decline in deaths from whooping cough occurred before the introduction of the vaccines in the late 1940s. The death rate from whooping cough in the United States had already fallen by 92% before the vaccine was in widespread use, and the vaccine had no appreciable effect on downward trend. In other words, if the rate of the vac if the rate of death had been falling, right, and then you gave a vaccine that worked, you'd expect the rate of the death fall to fall to accelerate downward, right, more, uh huh, right, but it didn't. It just kept on the same curve going downward. So the mm -hmm. vaccine had no appreciable effect on the falling death rate. Mm -hmm. Got it. Data from England and Wales is even more impressive, showing that the death rate from whooping cough had dropped by more than ninety nine percent before the use of vaccines. The belief that vaccination was instrumental in the decline of death is not supported by the data. And this is true in like the smallpox and, and measles too. We'll get to that another day. Here's, a, here's a, a highlighted thing. Doctors do not receive unbiased information in medical school or during their careers. In order for doctors to learn the full truth, they have to seek it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then deal, does this, sound, does this sound relevant? And then deal yeah. with the result in cognitive dissonance. It is very difficult to continue practicing medicine under conventional dictates once that truth is accepted. Yes. Brings to mind a, a Sinclair, uh, uh, a Sinclair Lewis um, quote that I always used to say, it's hard to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In 1974-75, outbreak of whooping cough in England affected a population in which 80% of the children had been immunized against pertussis. At that time, fears about whooping cough vaccine had caused a dramatic fall in immunization rates because they heard about the brain damage. <laughs> in consequence, a large increase in, of notifications, which I'm not sure what that means in Britain. Despite this increase, the number of deaths has not risen. Oh, so less people were taking the vaccine and yet the death rate did not rise. And it has been suggested that disease may now be less severe than it was originally back in the turn of the century. That's interesting. Since the decline in pertussis immunization, there has been an unexpected fall in whooping cough admissions and death rates. In Sweden, examinations in 1978 showed that 84% of children who were vaccinated, who, excuse me, were verified to have pertussis had previously received three doses of the vaccine. COVID, anybody? No, my triple vaxxed kids have all had COVID and some of them twice. 
Yeah. In 1921, the death rate from whooping cough was 321.6 per 100,000 during the first year of life. The figure steadily declined through the years to reach 1.6 per 100,000 in 1960 and has steadily decreased since then. So, you know, when I talk about this, was when I, we talked about the DTAP shot and I mm -hmm. said that there were like 20 or 30 cases of death in the first year in the United States in 2018, which is the last year I could find data. And I think a corrected number was 20. And so that's basically one in 200,000. Yet children are still getting multiple vac uh, doses of this vaccine, okay? So now you could say, well, they're not dying because of the vaccine, we'll get to that. Okay. okay. There was another contribution to the period of perceived decline in whooping cough, and that involved a policy change in the 1990s. This, this is going to sound familiar too, with this, this is what, similar to what happened with polio. The case definition of whooping cough was redefined in the 1990s, eliminating many cases that would have been previously tagged as pertussis. The World Health Organization said that the primary case definition required laboratory confirmation and 21 days of proxismal cough. I was a, this person who wrote this was, I was a member of the WHO committee and disagreed with the primary case definition because it was clear at that time that this definition would eliminate a substantial number of cases and therefore inflate the report of efficacy values of the vaccine. Yes, got it. Right, so they changed definitions. It's kind of like, well, these lockdowns don't really cause problems. Well, but kids aren't reaching their milestones. Oh, let's just move the milestones then, mm -hmm. which is what they've done. Mm -hmm. 18 month milestones are now 24 months. <laughs> well, yeah. Broken promises. As had been the promise with all vaccines at their inception, there was an expectation that vaccinated people would be protected for life against whooping cough. I know that that's what I believed when I was, a, when I was younger, that I was told you get vaccinated, you're protected the same as if you get the disease. But today it is generally recognized that vaccination does not produce lifelong immunity. A 2007 study in adults showed that the acellular DTaP vaccine induced antibodies that waned significantly after just one year. Hmm. But the story is even more complicated because even if antibodies are generated, this does not mean bacteria will be killed. According to Weingart, booster immunization of adults with acellular pertussis vaccines does not necessarily increase bactericidal activity. The conclusion, even in papers that demonstrate the lack of effectiveness of efficacy, is always to vaccinate old people and vaccinate them often. So even though it's not killing the bacteria, they want to keep vaccinating you. A study by Dr. David Witt, Chief of Infectious Diseases at the Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in San Rafael, California, found that the DTaP vaccine lost its effectiveness in children as little as three years. But it's really only very dangerous for very young babies, right? Whooping cough? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. my I mean, understanding. It's not, even, it's not even very, most babies that get whooping cough don't get that sick. Yeah. It's just, we're, we're, we're told that it's this terrible disease and they play this, you know, baby going, whoop, whoop, and that sort of thing and it scares the bejeebers. Yeah, it would be horrible if it's your kid. I understand that. Well, Jordan, Jordan actually had whooping cough. We were on a, on a camping trip and it, and it really is, a. I mean, it sounds terrible, but it really is just bad cough. Yeah. So I think that's good to mention as you're talking about all of this is that, you know, it is, it is the ones that we're really concerned about again, similar to COVID 
um, you know, our elders and really, really brand new babies. Um, and it's just, um, yeah. So anyways, keep going. Okay. In a, in a 2012 study by Dr. Witt and colleagues showed that the majority of children who had whooping cough as confirmed by laboratory testing had been what? Vaccinated. Yes. Of the 103 individuals, 12 years of age or younger, 85% were fully vaccinated, seven under vaccinated, and only 8% never vaccinated. Contrary to broad medical belief, the disease did not strike the unvaccinated more than the vaccinated as generally expected by vaccine proponents. God, what does that sound like? It's a disease of the unva- it's a disease of the unvaccinated. Didn't we hear that <laughs> all last year? All earlier yeah. this year? Right. Well. We already know that these diseases are not the diseases of the unvaccinated, the diseases of the vaccinated. And if people knew history, they would know that this, and they would know that Fauci and gang are all, I mean, what more evidence do you need that they're full of shit and lying anyway? But, but these people are supposed to be our experts. They're supposed to know vaccine history. They're supposed to know this stuff and they hide it from us. Yeah, they know. The highest incidence of disease was actually in eight to 12 year olds who had been previously fully vaccinated. Much like smallpox about a century ago and measles more recently, the realization that vaccination is not lifelong has resulted in calls for whooping cough revaccination of eight year olds, adolescents, adults, and seniors. Protection after natural infection was never lifelong, but it can endure for 30 years, which would yield far better herd immunity than unpredictable, short lived, and incomplete vaccine type immunity. 100%. Okay. So here's where it gets really, really interesting. And this explains why that's happening. And it explains why the vaccinated are all coming down with coronavirus now and why the vaccinated from, are coming down with whooping cough and vaccinated came down with measles and the vaccinated came down with smallpox. And it's called original antigenic sin. Have you heard this term? No. Okay. I've heard it before. And of course, the same debunkers are always going to debunk it, but it actually I'll, I'll read what it is and let me, and you tell me whether you think it makes sense. <laughs> I like that term, debunkers. Well, it's the mainstream media and the, and the CDC people and NIH people. Debunkers. And, the, and, the, and Big Pharma, of course. The concept of original antigenic sin was coined by Dr. Thomas Francis. I think it was in a paper in 1960. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's, so in order to understand it, let's define how the body responds to a natural infection. When a person gets an infectious disease for the first time, the body's immune system uses its innate powers, which mostly involve cellular immunity. In the process, it prepares for the future. The next time the same infectious agent comes around, the body will use its memory of the first experience so that it can react faster. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But after a vaccine, when the natural microorganism comes along later, the body will act according to how it was programmed by the vaccine. And yeah. that is what is meant by original antigenic sin. So in other words, the first time you're exposed to a, a, to a pathogen is the best chance you have to develop immunity to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when it comes to Bordetella pertussis, original antigenic sin is very important. And here's why. The bacteria secrete several toxins, one of which only emerges after the infection takes place. It's called adenylate cyclase toxin or ACT. Once whooping cough bacteria attached to the cells in the bronchi, a gene in the bacteria switches on and ACT, which acts like a force field against your immune system is produced. I know for our listeners, this is like a lot of deep in the weed stuff, but just listen on it's It's actually not that complicated. ACT stops the immune system from recognizing the bacteria 
by acting as an anti-inflammatory and anti-phagocytic factor. Phagocytic means cells that munch up other cells. Thank you. This gives the bacteria about a two-week advantage until the immune system wakes up to the fact that it has been duped. In the case of natural whooping cough immunity, ACT forms the basis of your initial immune response. That frontline immune response is not only critical for eliminating the first round of pertussis bacteria, but it also crucial for removing bacteria upon later reinfection. So your body develops its immune response against this ACT among other things, but it, it, it goes against this ACT, which is the sneaky little culprit that makes you more likely to get infected. In natural immunity, the body reacts very strongly to ACT, but because of original, original antigenic sin and the absence of ACT in the vaccine, the vaccinated are not programmed to respond to it at all. So when a vaccinated person contracts pertussis a second time, the bacteria can get a good hold because there is little to stop them. The immune system will not respond to ACT in the future because the programming has been set by the first contact. So even though you're now infected with pertussis, your body will not mount an immune response against ACT because it's directed off in, the, in a different direction by your the original programming. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. So the same thing's happening here. It's why people who got the mRNA vaccine, which was just against this limited spike protein, they, it can attack the spike protein. It has a high, strong antibody response. But if you get a variation that has other mechanisms or other, other antigens, people who catch the natural immunity are going to be able to fight that. People who've had that have, have original antigenic sin and are not going to be able to fight it. And it's why my kids have gotten uh, COVID twice despite being triple vaccinated. Yeah, and it's cognitive dissonance too, because when you talk to people who talk about having gotten the vaccine and being sick, they're like, well, thank God I had the vaccine because I probably would have been really sick. And I was like, really? Because I didn't have the vaccine and my symptoms seem to be pretty similar to yours. Yep. So, yeah, but they they just, they've they've drank the Kool-Aid, Stu. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, play, play, you know, I would recommend you, you buy this book and give it to them, but they're not going to read it. So maybe you could get them to sit in your car for an hour and listen to this podcast. Lock the door. <laughs> Lock the door. Yeah. <laughs> Drive real fast so they can't get out. Um, the reason immunologists and vaccine scientists don't talk about antigenic sin is because if they had to explain to the public just what it means in principle and in practical fact, they'd have to explain that vaccination breaches a fundamental immunologic tenant. Yes. You were very smart. That's just what you sort of said. They would have to admit that whooping cough vaccine immunity is vastly inferior and that vaccine immunity has immunologic unintended consequences in the future. Yeah. I'm laughing because I'm so angry. Yeah. Because this stuff is all known. This is from 40, oh, for years, long, from 40 long years ago, time. 50 years ago. 60. Far from being eliminated as a disease, whooping cough is endemic in highly vaccinated populations. It is important to understand that the pertussis vaccine can only prevent serious infection in some vaccinated people, but it will never prevent carriage and spread in anyone vaccinated or not. What does that sound like? <laughs> what we were just talking about. Yeah. yeah. COVID. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Because of original antigenic sin, the vaccinated will be unable to clear the bacteria as efficiently and thus are more likely to be vectors for the disease. Yes. Hmm. 
The mainstream media only reports, by and large, the supposedly deadly nature of whooping cough. However, in actuality, most cases of pertussis are mild and probably escape reporting. Yeah. Rates of reported pertussis are 40 to 160-fold less than actual illness rates, and asymptomatic infections are 4 to 22 times more common than symptomatic infections. There's a whole section in here about, about how um, it's often misdiagnosed or underreported, and, and grown-ups or teenagers or, you know, 20s and 30-year-olds who have this cough or whatever else, doctors don't even think about pertussis. They don't even, they don't even culture them. They basically just, here, take, take some ampicillin and call me in the morning. Yeah. Right. Um, portraying disease as severe, whether it is or not, is admittedly done because it helps to increase vaccine uptake. Publicity yeah. given to the more severe consequences of whooping cough has created a widely held perception that the disease is always severe, debilitating, and dangerous. Such a perception helps to encourage immunization, but if untrue, it degrades diagnostic accuracy. Historically, the dominant and obvious fact is that most, if not all, major communicable diseases have become less serious in all developed countries for 50 years or more. Whooping cough is no exception. It has behaved in this respect like measles and similarly like scarlet fever and diphtheria, in, which, in each of which at least 80% of the total decline in mortality since records began to be kept in the United Kingdom in 1860 occurred before any vaccine or antimicrobial drug was available, and 90% or more before there was any national vaccine program. Instead of acknowledging the true cause for this extraordinary mortality decline, what is the true cause? It's home hygiene, clean water, sewage treatment. Yeah. Instead of uh, acknowledging the true cause before this extraordinary mortality decline, before vaccination took hold, the medical profession embraced vaccination as a profitable and core medical tool. The problems with vaccines were consigned to oblivion or ensconced and ultimately replaced with myth. Few ever bothered to investigate or consider that anything else happened besides what they've been told. True, yes. Right. Every infectious disease cannot be viewed through the same lens or measured by the same standard of comparison. Some like smallpox were eliminated by improved hygienic environment. Others like polio virus were fallaciously blamed for sicknesses they were not totally responsible for. Some will never be eliminated by any mechanism. It wasn't until 1978 that pertussis vaccinations were required for school entry in the United States. But at the same time, infants of age six to eight weeks began to be vaccinated routinely. How many whooping cough shots did children get when you were growing up? I don't know. You know how many there is now? How Eight, many? Six? Four. Five. Five boosters, well, five, sh four shots and four boosters before six years of age. Wow. All right. Now we're in a situation where whooping cough vaccines are pretty much a regular event, cradle to grave. And the incidence of clinical whooping cough today in the most heavily vaccinated populations is increasing, inciting panic where their drug-sponsored media ramps up unnecessary fear. So the vaccines cause more cases of whooping cough, which then are exploited to encourage you to go get more vaccines to prevent the cases of whooping cough that the vaccines caused in the first place. And nobody does their research, so they just do it. Right, and then they call you a conspiracy theorist. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> well, that's that crazy Dr. Stu and Bliss. <laughs> Those crazy anti-vaxxers. Yeah. What's my what's my uh, T-shirt today? I identify as vaccinated. 
<laughs> that was that was a thing. Remember, that was back when they were talking about, you know, I identify as a woman or I identify as this. And, uh, you know, when you had to be vaccinated, you weren't going to be vaccinated. So it's an old T-shirt. But, you know, all my other T-shirts kind of got worn out on my RV trip. So I'm wearing some old T-shirts. <laughs> In the midst of all the panic and, re, uh, and revaccinations, vaccine resistance by pertussis bacteria is now emerging. So now you're getting vaccine resistance and you're getting antibiotic resistance. How, yes. futile, how futile does it seem to keep battling and essentially strengthening such a huge and potentially innocuous force with clumsy weapons? Properly managed, natural whooping cough is but an irksome nuisance that will impart true and lasting immunity upon the convalesced. However, through the onslaught of vaccination, the herd was robbed of its ability to efficiently deal with this disease. The future could bring a continuous evolution of vaccine-resistant strains that will no doubt require newer pertussis vaccines. Yeah. The reason that new vaccines can't be enough to provide herd immunity, even if they could provide full spectrum long-term immunity, has to do with how the rest of the population has been programmed with vaccines by that committed original antigenic sin. Given that booster shots don't increase the bacterial cytal qualities in the blood and do contribute to bacterial resistance, why even recommend them? And here's a morbid thought. Until those DTaP vaccinated adolescents and adults finally die, they will be the main source of carriage and spread in the community, whether a safe, live, effective vaccine is put to use or not. So you can't you can't make up for what the damage you did with that original vaccine, which was not a good vaccine, and caused your body to attack or fight the wrong thing. Whooping cough is and this is the last last stuff. Whooping cough is commonly a mild disease and apt to be missed. If whooping cough was perceived as a less severe disease, it might have a negative effect on vaccine uptake. If more people understood that the incidence of whooping cough has increased with increasing vaccines, bacterial resistance is emerging, and there is a non-toxic treatment available, certainly vaccine uptake would decline further. Since early diagnosis is difficult and treatment with antibiotics is not sufficiently effective, a reevaluation of the necessity of the entire medical approach is warranted. Yes. This was written, by the way, this was written nine years ago. Yeah. But that won't happen until the, quote, delicate fabric of interlaced pharmaceutical companies, government, and academia, and I would add the media into that, becomes torn. When the function of academic research is to foster and sustain a delicate fabric of collaboration, no one will bite the hand that feeds them, particularly in the climate that exists today. Remember, this was 10 years ago. Yeah. To serve the public interest, government advisory committees must be independent of industry, but such committees cannot be relevant and effective if isolated from the expertise and experience of the industry, which is a principal funder of vaccine research and development. Until this political triangle is broken, parents must know that the health of their children rests upon their own research and good judgment. Amen. Mic drop. <laughs> Sermon ended for the day. <laughs> right. So I know that that was 20 minutes, I guess, but it's still, or maybe even a little longer, but um, very, very valuable stuff. And I hope that people, I want to hear back from, uh, from listeners to see if they want me to do a, another chapter on another time, because this book is marvelous and uh, it's, it's well-researched. It's well-referenced. Uh, it is one viewpoint. There may be, uh, I'm sure there are other viewpoints, but the people who are, have the other viewpoints right now have blown their trust. And as far as I'm concerned, um, 
there's nobody in, in a position of authority, whether it's the American board or the American College of OBGYN or the NIH or the CDC or the WHO, they've all lied to us. And looking back at these books, they've lied to us for a hundred years. So why yep. trust them now? <laughs> Don't trust and them it, And you know, it's interesting, you, you keep making the parallels with COVID, but for me also, it's the, the parallels with what's happened to birth. You know, and, and what gets passed down from generation to generation, because the stories that we're telling is about what's happening in the hospital. And that's what we believe birth to be. But that is not birth. That's hospital birth. That's medicalized birth. The conversations about what birth actually looks like needs to be brought forth from people who have witnessed physiologic birth. Um, so been, I, yeah, yeah, you're right. That, that's that's. Mm-hmm. I, I love the fact that you brought that up because I, I had thought about that, completely lost track of that. So that's why you're the best co-host in the business. <laughs> the, the, um, we've been gaslit. Oh yeah. Long to believe that the things that are obvious are not obvious. And the things that are absurd are actually the norm. Yeah. And we, we have to stop. We have to, we have to take back common sense. We have to understand that, yeah, birth has been, it's the same thing that has been done with birth. You've been brainwashed to believe that you need the hospital medical system. Like yes. the letter that we read at the beginning of the podcast. Yes. She was, she was influenced by this subterfuge of nonsense that's put out there as, as uh, authoritarian, mm-hmm. reliable information. And it's not. You know what I was thinking is that that could be our tagline now, taking back common sense. <laughs> that's, that's our podcast. <laughs> yeah, I need, a t- I need a t-shirt for that. Well, it, it, it has been. We've been talking about common sense for a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. I've quoted Thomas Paine. Uh, you know, um, there, there's so much, you know, the long history of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial appearance of being right. And this is this is what's been going on in our in our profession and the medical profession. but you know, just, just, just knowing what we've done to our children and our women and what was, and our women and what was done to us by our parents unknowingly. Yeah. Thinking that they were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Trusting that 70% of doctors who smoked Winston's knew what they were talking about. (laughs) I'm glad that we can laugh a little bit about it because it, it, you know, you can hear that both of us, you know, it are frustrated with, you know, what is the information that we can get out? What could we say? What, how could we impact this? Um, we do the very best we can every week to just, you know, give you the truth as we can, can, uh, as we know it, or as we can reveal it. But, um, it is frustrating to feel like it's, you know, the needle is barely moving. Yeah. I would call it, we're, we're passionate about what we believe in and that's why people like hearing us talk passion uh, thank thank you bliss for being here today and uh <laughs> your, 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 your hair is a lot drier now <laughs> um, yeah we'll, good to we'll, see you we'll see you ne- we'll see you next week okay bye-bye 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 